Life Audio. Welcome back to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries, gospel-app.com. We're on a journey through the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for your feedback and questions and comments, bill at gospel-app.com. And look, I admit it, we're looking at it differently than than most. Um, uh, certainly layering a new perspective on top of the old stuff, looking at the Sermon on the Mount from an honor-shame perspective primarily. Um, where it's, that has informed the way we look at the Beatitudes. And you'll see, now we're talking about divorce. I think I think it'll pop off the page. I think it'll make so much more sense to you. And listen, if you've been divorced or you're struggling in your marriage or you know somebody who's who's struggling, please get them this information. Uh, have that. Let's let them listen. Because how has what you've been doing gone for you? So, divorce historically wildly controversial. And listen, you can go to ten different churches or ten different denominations and get twenty different points of view related to divorce. It's very confusing. Relationships are already hard. Um, and then when you put in conflict and shame and guilt, uh, lack of consolation, right? So here's the 21st point of view, but I hope I can convince you that it has merit. We need to dialogue. We need to explore it further. I think it's life-changing. And, l- and let's see. Push back. Bill at gospel-ab.com. couple of business items before we get to Jesus on Divorce. Our new Engage Small Bible Study is out. We're so excited about it. We think it's the best we've ever done. We highlighted it in the last couple of podcasts. I want to do the trailer again for you. Please prayerfully consider it for your small group, for your church. If you're not in a small group, you start one. And this would be a great launching pad, particularly gather people who just don't go to church anymore or uh, who have left church. Uh, millennials, just gather them. This is a place where it's shame-free. You can disagree. You can get the workbooks that have all of the video links and leader instructions, all that you need at Amazon or at our website, www.gospel-app.com forward slash engage. The name of the study is Jesus Said What? With a question mark. Jesus Said What? With a question mark. And I think you'll enjoy it. So after the trailer, we'll go directly to a word from our sponsors. See you on the other side. On that hillside in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus was not speaking to the so-called righteous Christian, but to religious and societal rejects, the lonely, the isolated, the despised, the cut off. They did not have a voice. They did not have remedy. They didn't need new principles to live by. They needed a rescue, a heavenly benefactor. None of them expected God to care about them. Organized religion only shamed them more. Maybe you can relate. If you wanted one place in the Bible to experience heavenly social justice for beat up, marginalized, frustrated men and women, all colors, sexes, and sexualities, and histories of injustice of any kind, look no further than the very radical Beatitudes. Don't miss this. Nothing is more important or relevant today.
But look around you. Your family, your faith, they're not in the way. They are the way. From the creators of Jesus Revolution comes the incredible true story. It's going to be dangerous and scary and giving up. It's not an option. The story of one family's journey from down under to center stage. Unsung Hero, a for King and Country film starring Candace Cameron Bure and Terry O'Quinn. In theaters now. Visit unsunghero.movie to learn more. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. All right, welcome back. Um, I, I hope you do the small group. I think you're. I think it'll be a hit. Uh, it'll certainly lead to lots of dialogue, and that's great. You can disagree at an engaged study. All right. Nowhere in the Beatitudes, we've said this before, was Jesus laying out a new law, you know, a list of new behaviors, principles that if you did them, you would be drawn nearer to God, that you would somehow quid pro quo earn God's favor. No. He stood over a very undeserving crowd on that hillside made up of outcast Jews, Gentiles, likely people who no longer expected God's favor. And, you know, they wouldn't have appreciated Jesus's message if he was giving them nine principles that they could do better with. How cruel? I mean, you wouldn't have either, right? I wouldn't have. How cruel would it have been if Jesus had stopped healing the sick to give a lecture on what they needed to do? How would that have gone down? I, I think that they would have even been further shamed, and they certainly wouldn't have followed him, which is what Matthew says large crowds did. I would have wanted to get as far away as possible from this new strict teacher who ramped up the law. No, 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 no. Jesus said to them the very first things, right? All of you poor in spirit, tokoi tonumati, all of you who have been told your failures, who've been rejected, uh, many, no doubt, who have lost faith and social worth due to divorce. Um, they can't improve their lots by just trying harder. He says to them, to them, the heaven of God is yours. Meaning, you and God are now as good as God and Abraham were. That's what that beatitude ultimately means if you unpack it. Well, what did they do to deserve it? Well, <laughs> nothing. Jesus was saying the right words, doing the right things to become their patron, their benefactor in an honor-shame culture. It's all about his social standing, not theirs. His righteousness, not theirs. His name became theirs as they were. So they were automatically in this honor-shame world, now people of honor and substance. They were enviable when they came unenviable. Why? Because Jesus made it happen. He spoke to them and something new was created that didn't exist before. His spirit poured out among them and in them, Isaiah 9. They were embraced and, you know, honored people embraced back. So when Jesus found them at the slope of the hill, they were poor in spirit. They were meek, meaning that they couldn't stand up to forces that were holding them down. They couldn't fix it. They were inconsolable, penthine in the Greek. And they just haven't gotten over what was done to them or what they did. They were victims. So Jesus' creative word began something new inside the people 
who, look, by nature, humanly speaking, they would have at best been survivors. We use the phrase in curvatus in se, which is the self turned in upon itself. They would have been looking out for number one. No judgment, it's human nature. But now something new is happening, and this is all related to divorce, so hang with me. Due to the Christ event, they were experiencing more concern for others, for the well-being of others. They were hungering after righteousness. They were feeling mercy to others. They were depending upon God more, the pure in heart, for their identity and purpose, so they didn't need others to fill their cups as much. And lastly, they felt a little bit of a desire to be a peacemaker, to lean into conflict, to, to be healers more than before. All of those things are related to relationships, marriage, divorce. And so if, you, if we get all of those things, we can begin to understand the, the thought, the line of thought in the six antitheses of Jesus. I mean, first, uh, right? The law and, of course, religious moralists would have said, you can't murder, all right? One of the top 10. But Jesus looked at these new clients, transformed clients of his who were beginning to get it, and he no doubt smiled and maybe winked-winked or, or its equivalent in the first century Middle East and said, but I say to you, don't even be angry. Don't speak down to people. Don't despise them. Don't uh, berate them. Don't treat people like fools. Well, you know, why wouldn't they do that? I mean, 10 times out of 10, that's how you deal with conflict and, and relational breakdowns. Well, because they're beginning to feel new love and honor for those people, people they've been in conflict with, right? And, and maybe even those religious moralists who were on the hillside, the very ones who most likely had been most hurtful and downgrading to them, who told them they were losers, right? So the, the people on the hillside were, were beginning to get a bigger picture, and, and I'm sure they nodded in agreement because they were beginning to see, uh, humanly speaking, apart from this new celestial motivation that came with Jesus— they would just keep on doing the usual competitive struggle for honor over and over. And it would be riddled with defensiveness and anger and divorce. But now they're beginning to feel that a little that they were actually willing to die for those who they were in the most conflict with. They get new lenses. So from a neuroscientific point of view, there's just no way they or you or I can't get angry, right? Can't not get angry. You see what I'm saying? Is It's human. Our brains go into fight, flight, and freeze. And, and often when it comes to conflict, divorce, it's fight. But now they have a new motivation that breaks away from the fight, flight, freeze that actually moves out to love the one they're in conflict with. A little, right? A little. I'm not saying perfect. That's heaven. But a little bit, noticeably. Maybe they repent faster. Maybe they a little more empathetic. Maybe they're compassionate. Maybe they recognize that the person is spewing anger and doesn't, wouldn't say that in, in calm circumstances. Maybe they forgive quicker, right? Just like Jesus did for them. All right, the second antithesis. You've heard it said, don't lust. Well, the new clients of Jesus get it a little. How do you not lust? There's it's, it's neuroscience. There's a place in all of our shadowy midbrains, and it runs to it at times. We don't have control over it much. We really don't. Something, but but in these people's heads, something new, a new newer habit was beginning to form. In this new spirit, why would anybody intentionally intentionally degrade and objectify someone by lusting after them? Right. 
Um, but when we do, we show again we need Jesus' creative spirit. Uh, so when we get into that cycle, that midbrain cycle, we fail, we remember. Now we can run back to Jesus with, with open hands, and he gives us access to new God source power to actually feel love and honor for the person, which diminishes the lust a little bit. And then a new cycle starts. It's not a new law. Jesus is not legislating, adding to legislation. He's pointing people to this new source of love and honor for, for other people, right? So those, he's not saying that those who don't lust are more pleasing to God than those who do lust. No, those who are getting the Spirit poured out in their inner being, listen, want to move towards people more with honor. They want to show mercy more. They want to be peacemakers more, not because they have to in order to get God's favor, but because they have God's favor. All right, here we are now at the explosive third antithesis, and we confuse this and bury the headline and I think make matters worse if we think that Jesus is just ramping up a whole law, he's legislating something new. It's an intensified Torah, not so much. The point is that those in the flow of Jesus' spirit are going to see the importance and feel the importance of marriage union more and will struggle more a little more, a little or a lot, to lean into the well-being of the other, uh, whether, by the way, they're adulterers or not, have been faithful or not, or have said ugly things or not. So the crowd on the hill, in that crowd, no doubt were people who had been cast out of family and tribe due to adultery. No doubt, men and women, I, uh, no doubt. And Jesus models this. He embraces them as equal clients. They get their face back. They become people of honor again, failed people, faulty people, but now they're feeling something different. They committed adultery because, in one sense, they didn't care for the other or, the, or due to concern of well-being of others. Lust and anger are very self-focused. They, they have that in common. They're self-concerned. I feel hurt, so I, I feel anger. I lust, so I want to have sex or I want to feel like I've got power over someone, right? lusting after them. But they both have little concern for other, more concern for self. Well, Jesus is injecting something new in the mix. His love loves the unlovable. His honor loves the dishonored. Why is that new? Well, we're going to answer that and so much more after a short break from our sponsors. See you in a moment. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... 
Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. So welcome back. Matthew 5, 31. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, there it is, there's the antithesis, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right, he's referring to the law, the Torah, Deuteronomy 24, in particular, 1 through 4. And here it is. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if he if then she finds no favor in his eyes, and that's one of the things that was debated by the, the scholars, favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her, again, a, a debated word, indecency, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts her puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, right, the first guy, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. So there it is, a specific instance where a wife is, is divorced, uh, it, it appears, we, let's legally give them the benefit of the doubt and, and assume that, that she has been indecent, unchaste, adulterous. Again, uh, that's highly debated what these words mean. I'll say some more about that. He divorces her. She remarries. The next man divorces her. Well, the first guy can't remarry her. That's what that's really speaking to. And it's, it's, it's hard to apply a lot in specific instances and we'll see what Jesus does. So in Jesus's day, there were two major schools of interpretation of Torah, and they had competing views of divorce. And we can now begin to see a well-meaning religious moralist. Here's what they were thinking. You know, what does Moses mean here that we should do so that God will favor us and bless us and not get uh, not turn his face away from us? We want to please God, not displease God. We want to be a pure community and an impure community and so forth, right? So they were trying to draw the lines. So I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt, the well-meaning effort. I get it. What's, what's the right thing to do? One school, the school of Hillel, which... It was known for broad and, and highly culturalized political interpretation, some say liberal interpretation in a very narrow sense. And they claimed that what Moses meant was if the, the, the husband, and remember the wife in Jewish cultures did not have the same rights uh, to divorce her husband, only the men could divorce wives. By the way, the Romans and Greeks, women did have that right in most cases, but in Judaism, they did not. So they saw the word some, you know, right, some indecency. Hillel interpreted it as any indecency, very broad, which could include bad housekeeping and such. I mean, 
it sounds shocking even to say it, a later Hillelite Rabbi Akiba goes way further and taught that even if the spouse, the wife, no longer seemed attractive to their husband, or that another woman captured the husband's attention more than her. Oh, my goodness. Uh, that's, that's just rough. So in, in, in Hillel school, the husband, still assured, by the way, of God's pleasure and favor and that he's righteous, could give her a certificate of divorce and remain a good and righteous Jew in good standing in the temple and synagogue, as long as he gives her a proper written document. Oh, my. There was another major school, Shammai, known for a very literal interpretation. And so if the husband became aware of actual sexual sin, so the he discovered his wife was in adultery, unchaste, a prostitute, something like that, then he could legally, uh, righteously give her a writ of divorce and still be a good husband in the eyes of God. Well, likely in Galilee, you know, far away from Jerusalem, Hillel was probably more influential. So Jesus is speaking to people probably more who embrace the Hillel school. Speculation, but I think that's right. Uh, by the way, when the temple gets destroyed in 30 years by the Romans, the Hillel school is the only one that survives. Judaism becomes Hillel. Hillel becomes Judaism. Shammai school is virtually uh, destroyed except just Jewish historical writings. And boy, that's bad news for first century wives, to be sure. So here's the, here's the discussion. Is Jesus agreeing with the Hillel camp or with the Shammai camp? Well, it sounds like on the surface, he's placing himself in Shammai's camp. And I, I would say, mm, yes and no. Yes, at least to some degree, he seems to be speaking the language of Shammai, but no, Jesus is not taking a side here. He's not ramping up the law related to divorce. He's not trying to define what's righteous divorce. That's not his goal. If a husband, if the husband was on the hillside who was going to divorce his wife or who has divorced his wife for whatever reason and was beginning to experience some of God's love for her, right, including if the wife had had an affair or had been an adulteress. Well, God's love loves adulterers. And so they would be moved a little to once again lean into saving the marriage, peacemaking, depending upon God's power and love, uh, uh, accessing God's love, because they actually begin to desire the well-being of the wife again who had hurt him, who had dishonored him, right? In that specific case. Are you with me? So Jesus is not talking about a new legislation. He's talking about rescue for beat up couples, destructive couples. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let me see, show, I think, how Jesus set it up. Again, pushback, bill at gospel-app.com. But I think this is helpful to couples going through divorce. Please help us get the word out to them. Matthew five thirty two. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife... So Jesus is, is doing a, a case study. Case study. Imagine a man who is about to divorce his wife. That's the, that's the person Jesus is putting up there as a straw dummy. Except on the grounds of sexual immorality, he says, making, and he makes her commit adultery. So follow me. Jesus is speaking about a very, very narrow situation. 
He's not suggesting this as an exception. He is saying something different. If the husband is divorcing his wife due to adultery, let's say she committed adultery, he's not the one making her an adulteress. So Jesus is not talking about that husband, all right? She's, the wife would already be an adulteress. Are you following me? So this particular instance, I would think about this. Once you see it, it just pops off the page. This husband is divorcing a innocent wife. Are you with me? And when he does that, he is causing or, or better seen, dramatically increasing the probability that she's going to have to become an adulteress in order to survive in that culture. So indirectly, he's no better than a pimp related to her. So Jesus could say, so the husband who is divorcing an innocent wife has become a pimp. That's, that's what Jesus is saying. And let me expand on that. He's not caring for her. The husband's not caring for her. The husband's not honoring her, not cherishing her or protecting her, the very thing that he wants God to do for him. Uh, and he's certainly not feeling what Christ is feeling about her, right? This husband on the hillside in Galilee. And look, think of how Hosea cherished Gomer in the Old Testament, right? What a great image of the gospel of God. Or Jesus' mother, right, Mary, whose reputation was protected by his dad, Joseph, or how Jesus treated the woman at the well with such respect, assuming, by the way, she was an adulteress, and that's not a foregone conclusion. I've spoken about that in the past. So, And it certainly wouldn't be in sync with Jesus' vision statement in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner, recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the favor of the Lord. And listen, a woman in adultery caught up in that and shamed would be a prisoner, would be oppressed. So Jesus has come for her and her husband too, don't get me wrong. He's not taking sides here. He's just saying husband and wife in this conflict called divorce, Jesus says, I'm for both of them. And if this can be fixed, this can be resurrected. All right. So in this particular case, Jesus, the husband is placing his former beloved in harm's way. By the way, very selfish of him and curvetous say of him in the bigger scheme of things, but so human. Man, you get hurt. You just want to protect yourself and you want to hurt the other person. It's just very human. Self-focused, not righteous, which is focused on other people, not merciful, not peacemaking. So the husband is indirectly causing her to commit adultery. Um now, granted, she makes choices, and we're responsible for our choices. We're accountable for our choices. She's the direct cause, but Jesus is focusing on him. Um, and by the way, so I've heard this said before, but in no way is Jesus saying that the law automatically defines divorced women as sexual, uh, unclean, or deviates, or men, by the way. I don't think that's the point. Jesus is looking at the culture going, look... Um, yeah, this lady's got nowhere to go. Nobody's going to hire her because of Judaism and, and the purity laws. Nobody's going to remarry her uh, typically because of the purity laws. So he's exposing the very heart, the destructive heart of the practice of divorce then. And by the way, today, it's not, an ex it's not expressing the favor of God to hurting, troubled people who have made bad choices. And by the way, Jesus has just become the patriarch, the benefactor of sinners on the hillside. If anyone um, could pursue spiritual divorce of a bride, it would be him, God. But he pursues, embraces, and rescues 
uh, adulterous bride, Israel. He's not a rejecter of the needy, and that includes adulterers. He has come to reconcile, to make peace. This is not a debate over the law. It's, It's a presentation of the gospel, a spiritual kingdom one. So, and whoever, he continues, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. All right, what does Jesus mean? Remember the woman in Jesus' Jesus's example here is innocent. She's chaste. So God sees the original couple still one. Even though her husband, Jesus says, has become an adulterer for treating her so despisingly, pimping her out, putting his wife on the street, so to speak. So in a real sense, anyone who sleeps with her, she's innocent. So anyone who sleeps with her is an adulterer because she's married. That's what Jesus is saying. He's just pointing out the absurdity of the whole thing. And then the cycle goes on. See, the point is less that it's against the law due to some technicality. The point is that marriage is hard. Nothing has hurt us more than relationships. And so when relationships start to crack, get heated and angry and murderous, it just it just becomes so, so, so hard very fast, particularly when we loved each other at the beginning. They shatter so quickly. But we're not on our own anymore. We have the Spirit in our inner being, we who are Jesus followers. And He, the Spirit, is a remarkable reconciler. He heals. He fills. He forgives. He consoles. He regularly reconciles enemies. That's what salvation is all about. Um, he, the, he, the Spirit can resurrect dead things. So pattern uh, in the in the beatit in the uh, the uh, antitheses section the six anger okay if we really wanted to admit it I can't stop an anger reaction it's habitual it's a reaction from my midbrain my prefrontal cortex isn't in charge so lust I mean maybe worse but you know uh, neuroscience says it's habitual okay how about despising and resenting and even hating a spouse after months or years of unresolved hurt and abuse and neglect. By the way, both ways, no doubt. Well, from a neuroscientific perspective, it makes sense why so many get divorced. It's, it's so hard. It's so painful. Um, and look, rage would be involved and lust would be involved typically. But Jesus, Jesus has come to the hillside, whatever hillside husband or wife you've been relegated to and offers a different approach. Not a new law, but a different approach. Shame-free So it's less about law or a new law or a clarification of the old one. It's about a rescue for law failures. People who didn't and wouldn't and couldn't do the law. I think the crowd, at least some of them, were beginning to get it. What does God favor? Well, God favors the husband doing whatever he can do to protect his wife, even even after an affair or two or more. Jesus is, again, Hosea and Gomer. Jesus is willing to die to redeem spiritual adulterers, right? Jesus embraces adulterers and adulteresses. So the husband in his humanity just can't, won't, but Jesus will and does. He gives that husband that he's speaking to on the hillside, maybe had a certain person, maybe he's looking at the guy. He gives that husband access to new motivation, new love, new power, a love that loves adulterers, an honor that honors adulterers, or vice versa, the wife towards an abusive, angry, neglectful husband. And and by the way, 
I, I need to say this when I talk about divorce. I'm, I'm not dealing right here with safety issues. If a spouse is feeling unsafe, they should leave, find a safe place, call for help. If, you, if your spouse hits you, you should call the police. I'm begging you, do those things. So I'm talking about now a longer-term strategy. Are you with me? Okay. So here at least, Jesus is not laying out a new law about divorce or trying to agree with one camp, Hillel or Shammai. Jesus is in a camp all to himself. There are other places where Jesus talks about divorce that I think are more instructive, more detail. I mean, I'd have to look at them. But in this particular case, Jesus is presenting the kingdom. That's the point. He's using the Beatitudes as a template to show those affected by the Beatitudes how it all fleshes out. And if, if, if the spirit of Jesus, this Christ's gift, can affect divorce, whoo, we've got something, right? And divorce, in a bigger scheme philosophically, it's the opposite of the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes reflect a king who pursues those who legally could be and maybe should be divorced uh, or held subject to the law, the unworthy, right? Not only does that king pursue and embrace an honor, he shares his name, his glory with them, even at great personal cost, right? Jesus is going to die. And reputation loss, Jesus will lose his reputation hanging on the cross, In his arms, in his grace, filled with his spirit, adulterers feel loved and adored more and, listen, no longer need their dopamine cups filled in other places, right? Lusting after others, pursuing others. They become more loved and loving. Husbands can access that power, that that motivation to love enemies, unfaithful wives and others through Jesus' spirit, and wives for their unfaithful husbands. Will it be easy? No. Oh, my goodness. I, I can't imagine much harder things, but it's, it's possible now. Humanly speaking, no. With God in Christ, yes. And by the way, will you get beat up for trying it? Will, will you lean into it and get beat up again? Yes, Beatitudes 8 and 9. Um, look at Jesus' dad, Joseph. We don't know a lot of the history, but we suspect that he took a beating for this uh, in his culture um, in Nazareth. But it's what redeemed people on the hillside want to lean into more, a little more than they did before Jesus. So we stop looking at the Sermon on the Mount as a new law. Um, And I wonder if somebody knows that'd be fascinating. How common was divorce in first century Judaism in the Galilee Galilee province particularly? I, I don't know. But I do know it's real common today and fairly accepted socially, even in church, uh, you know, we put guardrails on it and then make it normative. I understand it. I've been a pastor for 25 years. I get it. There will always be divorce, but the God standard, not a law, but the movement of God's spirit in us is designed to protect marriages, both husbands and wives. It's an example of the gospel, of the kingdom. Um, and, And by the way, when there is a divorce, or if you've already been divorced, to access love for the person who hurt you so much or you hurt, uh, so that there's actual leaning into reconciliation for beat up and traumatized people, uh, larger community feel. And look, here's my question. When the world sees the church related to divorce, do they just see different laws or do they see the same laws or do they, or do they see something heroic, God sourced, something inexplicable? So, of course, divorce is tragic. It's a massive anti-community thing, and we should avoid it and push against it. But here's my question. How? Is it 
for legislation so I look good to God, or is, or is it because I'm actually loving that person who just hurt me? And we all know divorces. We've all seen or been in uh, situations that are nasty and wildly destructive. People in, in the turmoil of separation and divorce can hate each other. It's actually pretty common, I've, I think. They treat each other very, very badly. It's just like bats hitting each other. Destructive. So what muscle groups can we get them to use to love each other again? I mean, that's some of the typical marriage counseling. Well, you, sh- you should love her. You should love him. So choose to love. Well, what, what muscle group is that? You're kidding, right? Here's what I tell. And, what, and, and my next podcast um, on divorce, we're going to look at an example of how I actually counsel uh, struggling marriages. Right? But here's, here's bottom line. If God doesn't intervene, they will either continue to degrade or murder each other. <laughs> right? Uh, that's antithesis one, anger. Or they're going to tend towards affairs. That's antithesis two, lust. Or they get divorced. And and there's a tear in the body of Christ. It'll be healed in heaven, but whew, it's painful. There is a new path where each partner can run to Jesus, their loving patron, get filled with his power, Ephesians 3, through the spirit in their inner being, and begin to feel love for the other, or at least a little less hate. That's a win. And begin to feel God's forgiveness for the other, or less revenge. That's a win, too and more desire to be a protector over faulty, troubled, and troubling people a little bit. Um, so you you may be screaming at this podcast, are you saying I shouldn't have gotten divorced or I shouldn't? You don't know what I'm going through. You don't know what's been done to me. You just don't. You know, so you might be screaming at Jesus. Jesus, I don't know how to not get, I don't know how to stop the process. I won't stop it. I've already, I've already done it. And Jesus says back to you, just listen, I know, that's where I found you. You can't or won't do it on your own. I get it. Your marriage is dead, um, or it will be dead soon. Uh, And listen to me, I do my best work with dead things. You desperately need me and my spirit. So Jesus, are you saying never divorce? If I do, I risk God's wrath? I'll be kicked out. I won't make it into heaven. No, 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 no. I'm here to say that on your own, you will likely get divorced or destroy each other, hurt someone that you once loved. You have a love other problem. You are very human. It's largely not your fault. Uh, And Jesus would say you need a spirit so much and so often that you actually begin to care for your spouse as much or more than you care for yourself, a little or a lot. And you can't do this apart from depending depending upon Jesus. And that is a choice we can make. Remember the simple and cluttered gospel? Let me say it real quickly. We'll say more about it in my next podcast on divorce. Jesus followers, strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, God actually loves you. He loves you with all of his heart, as much as the Father loves the Son and the Son loves the Father. By the way, this would be true whether you are divorced or are divorcing or being divorced. He can't love you any more or any less than he does right now. He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. Now, I get it. It often feels like you've messed it up or need to do something so that God would like you more. Not so. So how do you experience it more now? Simple. Good news. There is something that you can do and are invited to do. You can take daily baby steps to ask the Spirit inside of you to make you know, experience, and feel just how much God loves you right now. Just ask. Ask again later today. Ask tomorrow. Make it a spiritual habit. 
And again, this is true whether you have been divorced or are going to be divorced or are going to divorce or are struggling in your marriage. This is critical for you to begin to experience God's love for you as you are. All right, in the next podcast on divorce, I will share how I've worked with angry couples when I was a pastor of a church, and and maybe it will help. It will shine some light on how this new path, the Sermon on the Mount path, can help hurting and angry couples, how they can access the gospel of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, So I'll see you then. I want to take a second to thank the team at Life Audio for their partnership with us on this podcast. Uh, Check them out, lifeaudio.com other faith-centered podcasts. And listen, please pass this on to someone that you know whose marriage is struggling or who has struggled with uh, a former marriage, right? And they're worried about their relationship with God. Um, They will thank you. Feedback, bill at gospel-app.com. Always love that. All right, we'll see you next time. Take heart, child of God. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. God invites us to cultivate thankful hearts by turning our eyes toward Him in good times and bad. To listen to more Abide Christian Meditations, just go to lifeaudio.com or search your favorite podcast app for Abide Christian Meditation. You can also download the Abide app for more biblical meditations at abide.com.